We are amidst the 13 principles of faith, and we're trying to cover the topic really rigorously and comprehensively. We're right now, just to orient ourselves, we're in the 11th principle, which talks about reward and punishment. And we still have the 12th principle, which talks about Messiah. And the 13th principle, which talks about resurrection of the dead, we have that to come. And I think we we tried to kind of scour the subject briefly. We did our eschatological timeline, all the things that happens after someone dies. And now we're trying to circle back and revisit the subject in depth. And we theorized that if we're going to really study what happens to the soul after a person dies, after the soul gets liberated slash separated from the body, it's important for us to first understand what the soul is. Who is the soul? What is the soul? What is What are its properties? What is it comprised of? Of course, we know in the afterlife, we know what happens to the body. That part we know about, or at least for the most part. The soul is where the bulk of the action happens. And therefore, it's important for us to understand the nature and the properties of the soul before we dig in deeply into what happens to it, what transpires to it in the afterlife and in all the various venues of the afterlife. So previously we talked about the anatomy of the soul, how it's, you know, it's really like a chain of five different souls and how they're connected. And we talked about the origin of the soul, where the soul comes from, the lofty nature of the soul, the fact that the soul is very high in this totem pole. It is a direct creation of God. It receives its divine influence directly. It was created ex nihilo, something out of nothing. Today, I want to study the transpositioning of the soul. The soul is very lofty. It's very heavenly. But somehow it gets wedded to the very physical body. We believe, of course, that the human is this hybrid. It's this fusion of total opposites. On one hand, you have a soul which is loftier than angels. Remember, there's no filters separating the soul from God. It's a direct creation of God, and it receives its divine vitality directly from God. And somehow this heavenly soul is going to be fused and bound and welded to a body that's maybe the most extreme opposite on the spirituality spectrum from the soul. It's capable of more evil than any animal in the world. What a strange thing. What a strange creation that is the human. And again, we had this verse we talked about last time, chapter 2, verse 7 of Genesis. God formed man, on one hand, dust from the earth. On the other hand, he blew into his nostrils the soul of life. These total opposites that are fused together. So today I want to study the marriage, the strange marriage, the curious marriage of the soul and the body, this union of opposites and how it came to be. And I think that if we understand the history and the transpositioning of the soul, we'll also learn about the conflict of the soul. And we'll understand the dynamics that the soul faces in this world 
and how it all plays out in the afterlife. Now, I want to start from an interesting angle. I think it'll help round out our understanding of the soul. And that is the relationship of souls in general to the one original soul, namely that of Adam. As I just tell us, that Adam coalesced within him a certain collective, expansive soul that incorporated everyone. The conflict of humanity was just was just Adam. And in the event that Adam would have succeeded in his test, then the world would have transitioned to Olam Abba right away. Because Adam failed, his soul, so to speak, we'll talk more about how this actually works, his soul is divided up into a billion tiny little parts, and now his test is distributed to a variety of different units operating ostensibly independent. Independently, that is. So all of humanity, or at least all of the Jewish souls, were coalesced in Adam. There's really just, you know, this one big soul, and everyone who comes subsequently comes from a different part of Adam, and that is the roots of the individuality of every individual. Everyone's different because they stem from a different part of Adam. Now, our sages tell us that this individual unitary soul, this soul that's the amalgam of all the Jewish souls, that had different existences on different dimensions. This is what we're told. Adam's one soul is the same thing as the three souls of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. The three patriarchs and their respective souls, well, that's the equivalent of the one soul of Adam. And then you have the 12 sons of Jacob. And those 12 sons and their 12 souls, that equals, I guess on a different dimension, that equals the three souls of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob and the one soul of Adam. And then the 70 souls of those who descended down to Egypt, that's the same thing on a different dimension. And then the 600,000 souls that stood before the mountain at Mount Sinai, that is the same equivalent of the one soul of Adam, the three souls of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the 12 souls of the sons of Jacob, and the 70 souls that descended to Egypt. Now, what this means, it's obviously there's obvious questions. Because we think of a soul... As, as like a, a non-fungible entity. And if Jacob has a third of the soul of Adam, how is that divided to the 12 sons of Jacob when Jacob is still alive? But I think this does expose to us an interesting property of souls, namely that they are inexhaustible. And maybe we're to think of this, and I know we're deep in the weeds here, maybe we're to think of this is that we've seen already earlier that the item that's compared to the soul in Scripture is a candle. 
Remember that verse? Ner Hashem, Nishmas Adam, the candle of God is the soul of man. And we also have seen that, you know, a candle is Torah, and a candle is the soul, and a candle is mitzvos. There are many instances in our literature where the soul is compared to a candle. Now, the Midrash tells us that you could have one candle, that's a lit candle, and then you have 10,000 unlit candles, and that same candle can light 10,000 new candles. Now, of course, that's something that we know about. But if that was something we've never experienced, we say, wait a minute, there's, there's one candle, right? There's one fire. You can't have two of the same thing. It doesn't make any sense. If there's one, there's one. But somehow, the property of the candle is that when it extends its light forward, it is not diminished. It's not like an inexhaustible commodity that if you give it over, you lose it. So maybe that's a way to understand this, that souls are operating on a very different dimension We tend to think of the soul like a body. You know, if you have one body here, you can't have that same body elsewhere. We think of the soul as a non-fungible unit. If there's one, there can't be two. If it's here, it can't be there. If it's used, it's exhausted in one area. It can't be used elsewhere. But somehow, the, the soul's operating on a different plane, on a different dimension. And that lofty soul somehow made its way into a body. And these two are fused together. How did that happen? And I think if we study this question, it seems to you know be very theoretical. You could say, wait a minute, you know, why does this even matter? We're here, we have a soul, we have a body, and we have the manual, we have the mitzvot, we have the Torah, we have the instructions of what to do now. Why is it important to study the background, the history, the various stages of transpositioning of the soul. I think it is important to study it because when we understand the nature of this union and really the nature of this conflict, we understand really what life is all about and why there is a conflict of life and what the consequences are thereof. And if we're going to understand the reward and the punishment of the soul in the afterlife, after death, if we want to understand the destiny of the soul, it all hinges on the nature of the soul, the nature of the body, and the nature of their union, where they came from, how they were fused together, and everything that transpires, that is all connected. And for us to really have a a deep, fundamental understanding on the nature of the soul in the afterlife, we have to understand where it came from and how it was married with the body. And the most comprehensive source that I'm familiar with is featured in an incredible midrash. This is a midrash that over the years we've gone through it in various different instances. But every time I read it, it's so powerful, it's so evocative, it's so visual. It's worthwhile to go through it again. This is featured in the Midrash in Tanhuma, which is a kind of Midrash, in Parshas Pekude, chapter number three. 
And the Midrash, as it often does, bases its idea on a verse. The verse in Job chapter 9 says that God does great things beyond calculation and does wondrous things without number. What are these amazing and great things that God does? It's referring to the fusion of body and soul. All the souls, tells us the Midrash, all the souls that have existed since the beginning of time and that will ever exist to the end of time, they were all created during the six days of creation. There are no new souls being created. That's it. There is a fixed, finite amount of souls and no new more souls have been created. And they were all in the Garden of Eden, which seems to imply they were all coalesced in Adam. And they were all at Mount Sinai. So I was born in 1986. Mount Sinai, the revelation happened, according to our calculation, in the year 1312, I believe, before the Common Era. That's a long time ago. Yet we're told that all the souls were there. And the greatness of God, who does great things beyond calculation, who does wondrous things without numbers, that is a reference to the formation of the child. At the moment of conception, the Midrash tells us, there's an angel that oversees conception, and the Almighty gives this angel certain instructions. And he tells the angel to take the primordial fluid from which the body of man is going to be formed. It says, I want you to cut it up into 365 pieces. Sounds a little bit like mitosis, biology class. And the angel takes the biological matter, divides it up, tells God, well, I did what you asked of me. And then it is declared upon the physical component of man. And when we say man force, we mean mankind, as we always do. It is declared upon this biological matter what will be the destiny of this body? Will it be a male or a female? Will it be strong physically or feeble? Will this person be naturally wealthy or impoverished? Tall or short? Beautiful, handsome or not so much? Tender or coarse? Bashful or confident? All the innate characteristics and the temperament of a person is all predetermined, we're told in the Midrash. But whether this person will be a righteous person or a wicked person, a tzaddik or a rasha, that is not predetermined. That is given over to the person themselves. That is the idea of free will. You can choose your destiny. You can choose your level of righteousness. So we have... Again, this Midrash that talks about, at the moment of conception, a lot of what happens to a person in their lifetime, at least to the body, is already predetermined. The body and its travails are sent into motion. And next, continues the Midrash, now it's time to address the other ingredient of man. And the Almighty again instructs the other angel, the angel that oversees 
the spirits, the souls. And the Almighty tells this other angel, well, there's a certain soul who is in paradise, who is in the heavenly vaults in which souls are kept. And this is the name of this soul. And this is what the soul looks like. Every soul is different. Every soul is different appearance. Every soul is different characteristics. Go get me that soul. And the angel goes, rummages through all the souls and finds the one that the Almighty is looking for and brings it before God. And when this soul makes its appearance before God, it right away bows before God. It subjugates and submits itself to God. And the Almighty says, okay, do you see that other thing in the hand of the other angel? It's time for you to enter that thing. So we have two angels. One angel is holding the physical component of man. One angel is holding the spiritual component of man. And God says, okay, it's time to fuse together. The body and the soul, of course, at this very early stage of a person's existence, they are to fuse together. And the soul is very, very opposed, stridently opposed to this proposal. And the soul tells God, master of the world, I don't want to go there. I like the world in which I have lived, I've existed since you created me. It's much more comfortable for me. And that biological matter in the hands of that angel, that seems to be the worst place in all of existence for me to go to. I'm holy. I'm pure. Why do you want to put me in that putrid place? The soul, this is a very important idea. The soul is very disappointed at the notion that it is going to be fused with a physical component. And it presents its case, it lays out its case to God. And God is not sympathetic at all to this stance. God tells the soul, you like the world you're in? The world that I'm going to send you to is even better. And when I created you way back when, during the six days of creation, the reason why I created you, the reason why I created the whole idea of a soul, is so that the soul can go into the world, be married to a body, have the conflict of life, have the opportunity to achieve something great, have the opportunity to achieve eternal pleasure on your own. Thanks to your free will. That's why I created you. It's time for you to jump in to that biological matter. But the soul is unconvinced. And the Midrash tells us that God has to force the soul against its will. The soul is married to the body, kicking and screaming. It's fighting, it's resisting, it doesn't want to participate in this enterprise, in this initiative. It's forced into it. Elsewhere, our sages tell us that there are angels that are stationed there to make sure that the soul doesn't escape. Because left to its own devices, it would leave. It would just leave the instant that it had the opportunity to. 
In fact, when we say in our blessing, after you use the facilities, Asher Yatsar, Rofei Chol Basar Asos, when we praise God that God acts wondrously, one of the interpretations is that the fact that we have so many orifices, so many places for the soul to escape from, yet the soul is maintained within us. The soul wants to escape. It wants to flee. It wants to go back home. It wants to get out of this misery, this miserable union. But God compels it. God forces it to stay there. And then continues the Midrash. The angel takes this now new concoction, something physical, something spiritual, places it in the womb of the mother. And again, like we mentioned earlier, there are angels that are stationed, that it shouldn't leave and it shouldn't be miscarried. And then there's the candle on the head that we mentioned earlier from the Talmud. And the soul and the child is able to see from one end of the world to the other. Now, if you have had a chance to peruse my uh, recent book, Upon a Ten-Stringed Harp, you notice that this is a theme that we start the book with. The next part of this Midrash is not mentioned in the book. The next part of the Midrash talks about what else the child is privy to see before it's born. The child now, we're we're calling the child as the amalgam of the physical and the spiritual that were forced together. The angel takes the child on a sightseeing tour. He takes him out of the womb of mom and brings him to Gan Eden, to paradise, to heaven. And he shows him that Sadiq and the righteous who are sitting with great honor and splendor and their crowns are in their heads. And the angel tells the soul, do you know who these people are? And the soul responds, no, I have no idea who these people are. So the angel informs the child or the soul. These that you see, they were once like you. They too were once small zygots, embryos in their mother's womb. And they went into the big bad world. And they observed the Torah and the mitzvahs. And therefore, after they passed, they were meritorious and they were given an invitation to what you witness now. And you should know, tells the angel to this child, to this zygote, to this fetus, you too are going to leave the cocoon of your mother's womb And if you are meritorious like these people, you too will end up in this lovely place. But if not, you should know that there's another place. And we'll go there soon. We'll visit there soon. There's another place that the people who make the unfortunate decision to not listen to God, that's where they end up in. At nighttime, continues the Midrash, the angel takes the soul, the child, to Gehenom, to Purgatory. And there they witness the Rashaim, the wicked people. And they witness the angels that are the punishing angels, that are hitting them, that are whipping them with staffs, with sticks of fire. And those wicked people are suffering and are crying 
and are saying, woe unto me, but they receive no sympathy. And again, the angel asks the soul, do you know who these people are? And he says, I don't know who these people are. And he says, well, these people are being punished. They were once like you. And when they went into the world, they did not listen to the instructions of God. They did not obey the Torah and the laws of the Almighty. And that's why they ended up in this terrible place. And you should know, this will also be an option for you once you are born, once you go into the big bad world. Be a tzaddik. End up in the good place. And don't be a rasha. Don't end up here. The Midrash concludes by telling us that the soul actually continues the sightseeing tour. The soul is shown by this angel, the place that they're going to die and the place that they're going to be buried in. And they're shown the whole world and the tzaddikim, the righteous people, and the rashaim and the wicked people. And he's shown everything. And finally, it's showtime. It's time for the child to go into the world. Again, the angel who is chaperoning this soul, he makes an appearance and he says, okay, it's time to be born. And again, the soul is very resistant. And the soul is told by the angel, well, sorry, you don't have a choice in this matter. Against your will, you are formed. Against your will, you will be born. Against your will, you will die. And against your will, you're going to have to give an accounting before God. And again, the soul is resistant and they have to be forced out. And as they're born... All those experiences are forgotten. And the child begins to cry because of the wonderful, spacious, and comfortable and pleasant world that they emerged from. Now, the Midrash pivots to talk about, okay, now it's lifetime. Child's alive. It's a great celebration, of course, for the parents and the family and the community. But when we have this batch story, the soul is actually kind of miserable here. And the Midrash proceeds to talk about the seven stages of life, which is in itself just a fascinating little part of this Midrash. In the first stage of the life, the child's like a king. Everyone's to hold them. Everyone's to, everyone loves them. Everyone kisses them and hugs them. And in the second stage, they're like a pig. Why? Because they love to make huge messes when they're around two years old. Terrible twos. Terrible toddlers. And then when they're around four or five, they're like a goat. They're jumping all around. And then they're like a racehorse. And then they're like a donkey. And then they're like a dog. And finally, they're like a, like a monkey. They're going through the stages of life as they mature, as they get more responsibility, and then they get old and senile, and everyone hates them. That's, that's how it ends. I was like, oh, this old person, 
they're just such a dragon society. And they're, they're kind of childish again and they're immature again. And they've lived all these, they've gone through all these stages of life, which is just an interesting part of this midrash. But after life is completed, it's time for them to have a second audience with this angel. One day, this old person who's lived a rich life has a visitation from the same angel. And the angel says to the soul, do you recognize me? Have we met before? And he says, yes, I remember you. Why are you here today suddenly? So the angel tells the soul, well, now it's time to go back where we came from. It's time for you to leave this world and to go back to the world that you originated from. And again, the soul begins to wail. And the cry of the soul, says the Midrash, reverberates from one end of the world to the other. But no one can really sense it. Just the rooster can sense it. Interesting little vignette in this Midrash. And the soul tells the angel, wait a minute, you already took me out. You already extricated me from two different worlds. First, when you placed me in that drop that I didn't want to go into, and then you brought me out of the womb into this big bad world. Don't do this again. And again, the angel reminds the soul, you don't have a say in this matter. Against your will, you are formed and you are born and you live and you die. It's all against your will. And against your will, you will have to give a reckoning and a judgment and an accounting before God to justify your behavior. Thus concludes the Midrash. And of course, this is a fascinating Midrash with all kinds of really important insights But I think the chief idea here is the fact that the soul is placed in a very unnatural setting when it is bound to the physical aspects of life. It originates from a very lofty place. It doesn't want to have any part of this life. And this is all happening against its will. The soul loathes the notion of being bound to a body. They're opposites. The soul is not supposed to be married to the body. They exist as complete polar opposites, yet they are forced together. And this marriage, of course, contains risks for the soul. Before the birth, the soul is shown these very different places that it can end up in. And that's all a consequence of the choices that a person makes over their lifetime. The soul can be tarnished and sullied once it is united with the body, placed in this world. And that can have eternal consequences. Life here for the soul presents an existential crisis. And that's why it's warned about it. That's why the angel gives it all this background, look at this place, look at these souls, look where they ended up. It's pretty lovely for them over here. Look at these other souls. 
Look how much they're suffering because they violated the will of God. And you have a choice. A lot of your life and the circumstances of your life are predetermined. You can't really change them. Incidentally, the Talmud does say that if you are poor, you're destined to be poor, you actually can change it. That's the power of prayer. Prayer can change those parts of your life that are predetermined. Put that aside. But a lot of your life is predetermined. But whether or not you are a tzaddik or a rasha, righteous or wicked, that is in your hands. And this is why God created the world, to create an arena of free will, this temporary, unnatural existence where the soul and body are united and the Almighty cedes control to the de- to the person of the destiny of this soul and the choices that they make during their lifetime are going to reverberate in the afterlife. This is the conflict of life. The soul was very happy in its previous universe. It was happy. It was been, it's been there since the six days of creation. And this ridiculous notion is foisted upon it. Go bind yourself with something which is the complete opposite of what you are. Go be thrust into this terrible world where you can you, you are going to risk the purity of your soul. And you'll have to suffer the consequences should you choose that unfortunate path. This is like the structure of life. The soul is in grave risk, but we have the means, we have the tools to save it from destruction. We can get back to where we started from and end up in an even better place than the origin of the soul. Again, this soul was shown that Sadiqim, the righteous people, in a very high state, a higher state than the soul itself originated from. And the objective of life is to be placed in this world with so many challenges and so many temptations and so many risks and so many dangers and so many tests for the soul to navigate that successfully and to arrive back where you came from and to face God in judgment and say, I did what you asked me to do. And then to reap the rewards thereof. Ashidas tell us, Ha'olamazeh prosdar. This world is akin to a prosdor, a corridor. The world here is like a hallway, like a, like a, like a corridor. We're trying to get to the ballroom. The goal is really the, the afterlife, which is, again, I've said this a million times, but I have this pet peeve. We don't, we shouldn't call it the afterlife. That's really life. This is the pre-life. We're trying to, to get there. You have to prepare yourself. Continues the Mishnah. Haskin Asbacha proposed to prepare yourself, get yourself ready, fit yourself in the corridor so that you are eligible to enter the ballroom. This is where free will comes into play. You're in this corridor and you don't really have a, a clear memory of all those experiences of the soul. If, if you did not forget what your soul witnessed when the angel was giving it a sightseeing tour, if you don't forget that, if you still had a 
clear, visceral memory of it, there would be no free will, obviously. There wouldn't be a capacity to have free will in that instance. Free will can exist only thanks to us forgetting that. What are you going to do in this corridor? Are you going to do what it takes to successfully enter that ballroom? Or will you allow yourself to be seduced by temptation, by inertia? Will you succumb to the Yitzhara? Now, to help round out this understanding of this framework of life, I want to share two analogies from our sages that help kind of sharpen this point. Both of them, incidentally, are featured in my new book, Upon a Testing Tarp. The verse tells us that we're supposed to wear tzitzis on the corner of our garments. And when you wear them, you remember all the mitzvos of Hashem, your God, and you'll be holy to God. The Midrash says something really lovely, really scary, really neat. The Midrash tells us that tzitzis are symbolic of all the mitzvahs. You see the tzitzis, you remember all the mitzvahs of Hashem, your God. The Midrash furnishes an analogy. There was a man who was thrown from atop a ship into the water, into the sea. And the captain of the ship through a string, through a lifeline, to the person, to the sailor overboard. And the captain tells the person in the sea, grab onto that rope and don't let go, because if you let go, you are doomed. This is the analogy. There was a sailor on a ship in close proximity to the captain. In this analogy, the sailor is the soul, the captain is God. Life begins when the sailor is thrown overboard, chucked into the raging, roaring sea. The sailor used to be on the ship deck in close proximity to the captain, to the Almighty in the analogy. The soul was secure. It was safe. It was comfortable. That's why I did not want to be infused into the body. For the soul, being married to the body, being told to jump into that biological matter, that's the same thing as the sailor being told, hey, we're going to chuck you overboard into the sea. It's okay. We'll throw you a lifeline. Mm, I'd rather not. But God does it anyway. This is the arena of free will. And now the sailor, the soul in the analogy, is flailing about in the sea. It could very easily drown. But the captain throws in a lifeline. The mitzvos, as symbolized by the streams of the tzitzis, that's the rope that the Almighty will use to haul us back in. Thus says the verse about tzitzis. Tzitzis, when you see them, you remember all the mitzvahs of Hashem, your God, 
and you do them and you won't deviate after all those dangers and you will become holy to Hashem your God, meaning God will haul you back in. The mitzvos are the tools to help us avoid the dangers of life to our soul. Now, how that actually works, that's the second section of my book. That's part two. We talk about the body and the soul and how they mirror each other like a tailored garment and how the soul has 613 parts and the body has 613 parts and there's 613 mitzvahs and how it all fits in perfectly and how mitzvahs are going to nudge a person up the lifeline and into proximity to God. But again, this is another angle of this framework. The soul doesn't want to be here. The mighty is desirous of the soul being here. In God's eyes, this makes sense. In our eyes, it doesn't make any sense. If we had to choose, would you rather stay in the ship deck? In the safety of the ship deck, you're close to God. It sounds very idyllic. I'll stay here. That's what the soul wants. But God overrides the soul, throws it overboard, thrusts it, into danger and says, okay, you're, you're on your own. I'm going to throw you a lifeline. I'll give you the Torah and the mitzvos. But ultimately, it's your choice. Do you want to seize upon that lifeline or do you want to risk drowning? And remember what the angel showed you. It's not so pleasant for those who are spiritually dead when they arrive at the ballroom. There is a second analogy that our sages share with us. This is featured in the Talmud, the book of Sota, page 21a. My grandfather of blessed memory said that anyone who wants to be a Talmud Chacham, a Torah scholar, has to intensively delve into this teaching in the Talmud. And the Talmud tells us, it's based upon a verse in Proverbs, Ner mitzvah v'torah or. A mitzvah is a candle. And Torah, well, that's, that's light. And it gives us an analogy. There's an analogy of a person who was walking in the black of night. It's dark. It's foggy. And they have no idea where they are. And they are traveling. They are on a journey. Another analogy of an odyssey of life. What's the nature of this journey? It's the soul trying to get back home. So we have one analogy, the soul going down the corridor to the ballroom. We have the analogy of the the soul overboard trying to get back to where it came from, to get back to the ship deck. And now we have a person, in the analogy, walking in the black of night. Incidentally, the Talmud tells us this world is very comparable tonight because there's a lack of clarity. Not only is there a lack of clarity, there's also the masking of dangers. If you're walking at night, you don't know where you're going, but you also don't see, don't appreciate the potential pitfalls and obstacles that you could bang into. Continues the Talmud When this person is walking in the dark of night, he's worried about all the potential obstacles, 
all the thorns and the thistles and all the dangerous animals that are roaming at night and the marauding robbers and thieves. And he doesn't know which way he's going. There are all kinds of threats that the person has to face. There are things that could impede his journey. There are holes in the ground that he doesn't see. Should he fall into them, not only would he be injured, but he would need to be extricated from it. There are wild beasts and roving bandits that want to attack him and injure him. And perhaps most critically, he doesn't have a sense of where to go. You're trying to get someplace, but it's dark. You don't have a flashlight. Your GPS doesn't work. You're in trouble. And then he finds a flashlight. Then he finds a candle. Then he finds a torch. Now he could see around him. And he'll notice, oh, there is some thorns that I should avoid. There's a hole in the ground that I should sidestep. He's still not free and clear because there are still the animals and the bandits and he still doesn't know which way he's going. But once daybreak hits, the bandits go to sleep. The animals go back to their lairs. He's now safe from many of the threats, but he still does not know which direction he's heading. When he arrives at a crossroads and he sees, okay, you want to go to this city, go make a right. You want to go to that city, make a left. You want to go in that direction, go straight ahead. Once you arrive at a crossroads, he's saved from all of those dangers. Says the Talmud. Mitzvos, they're a candle. They save you from some of the dangers that you face in this world. Torah's light, it's daybreak. It saves you from some of the other dangers that you may face. The crossroads, that is when you arrive at the day of death and you are still safe. You've lived a life of constant vigilance and now you're being brought back to where you came from and you're still good, you're still in the clear, now you know you cannot slip up again. Even if someone's very righteous, and they have Torah, and they have mitzvot, they still don't know the direction that they're heading. Why? Because so long as you are in the arena, so long as you are alive, and you have the Eitzah and you have this world that's really akin to darkness, there are still threats that you must face and must overcome. Until you are brought back out of this world and you are removed from the arena of free will, you can never be certain that you will make it back home. Mitzvah is great. It's a candle. Torah is even better. It's the light. And with them guiding your path, provided that you don't abandon those divine tools, you can know that you're going to get, please God, closer to your destination safely. These teachings of our sages, they create for us an understanding of what really the soul is about. What are the threats that it faces? What are the dangers, the potential pitfalls that it must avoid? 
What are the tools given to us to aid us in our journey? And of course, the objective is that we return to the Almighty and we face our judgment and reckoning against our will, as the angel reminded us again and again. And we could say that we have brought back our soul in pristine condition. We have adhered to the warnings of the angel. We're good. We're back up the lifeline. We're in close proximity to the Almighty. And the first place that the angel showed us, that is where we deservedly end up. This, I think, is a very, it's a very radically different understanding of what life is. Like, if this seems foreign, that's by design. According to our sages, the real place where we belong is not here. This is just very unusual place, very unnatural place that again and again we have resisted because we, as in our soul, has resisted because this is not where we belong. Our soul, that's the part of us that's been around for a long time in the past. That is the part that will endure after our passing. I always say, I know I've said this many times, but, you know, the body, we think of ourselves as that's who we are, right? But the science tells us that your body is not the same thing that it was when we began talking today. Why? Because your body's constantly recycling out those cells. New cells are being created. Old cells are being discarded. Every couple of years, you have a total refresh of who you even are as a body. On a molecular level, not even the same thing. Not even the same pieces of hardware. Every day, there are millions of little factories that we call cells within you that are being replaced. Even your body is not the same body that it was yesterday. But the soul, well, that's that's our fixed essence. That is what remains. That is our identity before we started and after we go back home. But of course, we're not designed to think like that, right? If we think of the existence of our soul, if we even acknowledge its existence... We view it as an accessory to our body. Oh, I have a I have a soul within me. Do I have it? I don't know. Maybe. It feels like I have it. I can't really pinpoint it. I've never seen it before. We have it all backwards. It's the upside-down world. We think of ourselves as the body. And the soul, if it even exists, we think of it as some sort of accessory to our body. The Torah's viewpoint, the message the Torah's trying to get over is that it's the, the exact opposite. Our identity, like the sailor, you were to ask the sailor, where do you belong? Is it in the sea or is it on the ship deck? Of course, the sailor would say, it's on the ship deck. If you were to ask the soul, where do you belong? In the heavenly spiritual spheres or in this crazy world where everything around you is a danger and a threat and was trying to attack you. And to threaten your purity, the soul would say, this is a terrible place. This is a war zone. Yet somehow, we don't view it like that. The idea of like, 
dying and the afterlife. To us, that's totally foreign. That's that's terrifying. That's the way our soul views this world. So I think the objective of what we, we covered today, if this is all we got out of it, then we have done our job, is that everything is upside down. In this world, what is truthfully for our soul, a danger, a threat, it's nighttime, you're in the water, you're going down this corridor and you could be distracted. We view it, and this is why there's free will, this is why there is this conflict. We view it as this is where we live. This is life. Maybe there's an afterlife. I don't know. But this is life. And that's part of the challenge. There is an interesting idea that our sages hint to us, but some of the commentaries spell out. The mission that we mentioned earlier talks about the, the corridor. There's the corridor, you're walking down the corridor trying to get to the ballroom. The Hebrew word used for the corridor is a prosdar. A prosdar. That same word is used to describe a birth canal. Similarly, and I do mention this briefly in the book, The Hebrew word for a grave is a kever, which is the same word used for a womb in Jewish literature. What this is telling us is that our world here, we think of this as, you know, the world that we're trying to, this is the world that we have, this is the world that we live in. It is akin to the world of the soul or of the of the baby before it is born. Meaning that if you were to ha- ask the child in utero, you know, what does your world look like? They would say, well, it's kind of great. All my food is provided for me and I get to stretch a little bit. I could do some aerobics. It's comfortable. It's pleasant. What's happening, you know, once you leave? Oh, that sounds terrifying. That sounds terrifying. That sounds really dangerous. Yet we know now that the size and the scope and the expansiveness of the world that the child emerges to is hundreds of trillions of times bigger and more expansive. Much more places to do aerobics here. In a similar way, when you go into the grave, you're essentially going into the womb, meaning you're about to end up in the world that's really, really much bigger. So there's the equivalent, so to speak. This world to next world is the same thing as the child in utero to this world, meaning that this world is really so constricted and it's just there as a portal, so to speak, to try to get to the real world that truly matters. But our state, our destiny in that world hinges on what we do over here. In our lifetime, in this world, when we're like the sailor overboard, 
We're walking in the dark of night. We have the choice. Are we going to grab onto that lifeline and not let go? Are we going to summon that torch, that candle, that flame? That's our choice. And like the angel told us before we were born, the consequences thereof are quite stark. If we preserve the purity of our soul, we'll end up in an incredible place. If we unfortunately make the other decision, it is a very bad place to end up. Maybe it's not so bad. We'll, we'll talk more about that. But now, thanks to our understanding of the makeup of the soul, the origin of the soul, the transpositioning of the soul, the conflict in which it is placed in this world, now we can circle back to what happens in the afterlife. Okay, person's died. The body is, is buried. The soul has its audience before God. What happens next? That is the subject that we will, please God, dig into. And again, as I mentioned this a few times ago, some of the things that we're going to cover are not for the faint of heart, not for those who are queasy. So if that is, if that is your persuasion, that's okay. I won't be offended if you skip it. But I, I think that our mandate here is to try to cover these fundamental subjects of our philosophy as comprehensively and as rigorously as possible. So I have some books that I just recently bought that talk about some really scary stuff. And it's scary for me. It's kind of terrifying. And... I'm constantly vacillating, you know, should we just skip and say, oh, let's go to Messiah. Let's go to principle number 11. I think that what we need to do is to study this as rigorously, as fundamentally as possible, acknowledging that what we're going to discover may radically shake up our worldview. That's what we're going to do. I'm not offended if anyone wants to just, you know, skip a few episodes or take a few weeks off. That's okay, but we're going to try to do it as best as we can to the best of our abilities. Of course, trying to cite all the sources so that, you know, I'm not trying to pull a fast one over you. But regardless, I look forward to your feedback, some of your questions and your comments. The email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com.